as showcased on NBC's The Today Show, Episode 4, From the Tips, is sponsored by Remask. Keep your friends, family, colleagues, and students safe as can be with the highest quality masks on the market today. Use code COLIN15 for 15% off. That's C-O-L-I-N-1-5. For more information, go to www.remask.com. That's R-E-M-A-S-Q-U-E.com. Now, your hosts, the Rush Brothers, Scott and Colin. Welcome, everyone. Yes, it is episode four from the tips on the Believe Podcast Network. I'm one of your hosts, Colin Resch, coming to you from the smoky skies in uh, Northern California. I'm in the land of free solo right now in Mariposa, California, just outside Yosemite, or as uh, Trump likes to call it, Yosemite. My brother, Scott Resch, he's in uh, Park City, Utah, and we are joined by a very special guest, one of my favorite people that I got to cover in, in my years in TV. It is now the assistant coach of the Cleveland Cavaliers, Lindsey Gottlieb, coming us uh, to us from Cleveland. Right, Coach? Correct. I have been here straight for almost six months now. I think the longest time that I've ever been in one location without traveling. So uh, <laughs> we love Cleveland. I've explored a lot of it. So I'm coming from you from our home right here. Well, I covered obviously four straight NBA finals uh, going to Cleveland, so I got to know that city pretty well. And and we have to say, we're going to preface this. Those are going to watch this on, on YouTube. I've got a Warriors shirt on. It turns out, Scott, which one are you wearing? His Everybody Loves Draymond shirt. Everybody uh, loves I know. Draymond. But hey, you've got Warriors was, was this ties, Coach. because you knew I might be wearing a Cavs shirt? <laughs> Maybe. We, Maybe. We love it. We love it. So Here's the thing I've had to so, kind of fake some – disdain for the Warriors. I, mean, I know this this town that we're in now is, uh, you know, not not fans of the Warriors, but obviously I came from the Bay and um, have a great relationship with, with, with Steve Kerr. So it's hard for me to, even though I'm all in on the Cavs, it's hard for me to, to you know, hate, hate your shirts. I, I can't lie. Well, well full I, disclosure I like to... on my end, uh, since my brother never got me a Everybody Loves Xavier McDaniel t-shirt, this is what I have. So, Gotcha. <laughs> the X-Man. Uh, you brought up Steve Kerr, coach, and the last time that I interviewed you was right before you were about to moderate a discussion with Steve Kerr and Gina Oriama before you hosted UConn. I never got to talk to you afterwards about how that went. You just told me how nervous you were to moderate that discussion. Forget about the game and playing UConn at home at, at Haas Pavilion, but the moderation. How did that go, and did you feel you did a good job? Well, did you get to watch it at all? I didn't. I didn't. No. I didn't. But I want to yeah, know I don't your know if it's been I wanna... made. I think it's on YouTube now. Um, but it, it was an unbelievable event. And, and really because of those two. I don't know how much time you spent around Gino. I know you obviously spent a lot of time around Steve Kerr. But yeah, they're two Steve of the most lot, intelligent, yeah. thoughtful people aside from basketball. So it was just a really neat uh, environment. It, it was uh, at the university club at... Uh, Cal Berkeley. So there was an incredible backdrop of, you know, a view and then the football stadium and it was kind of an intimate crowd. And uh, for those that don't know what uh, you're referencing, I had my Oprah moment where I got to just kind of go back and forth between, you know, two of the game's best minds and greatest champions and just throw questions at them back and forth. So it was, it was really a neat thing. And I think it went really well. People enjoyed it. That's awesome. A quick background for people tuning in and, and what you did at Cal. So you were an assistant at Cal under Joanne Boyle, 
for a number of years, then moved on, got your first head coaching job at UC Santa Barbara, returned to Cal when Joanne went to the University of Virginia, and all you did in eight seasons, I got to bring these numbers up, only once did you not win 20 games in a season, which is remarkable. Um, you went 32-4 and four the 2012-2013 season, made the school's first appearance in the final four, 32 and four, unbelievable. And obviously this all segued into an opportunity with the Cavaliers, which you joined in 2019. So uh, first question I guess I, I will ask is based off of all the success at Cal, do you think that really positioned you to get this role with the Cavaliers? Had you not had that type of success or were there other factors involved? That's a great question. I mean, I think in sports, uh, the first thing that sort of precedes you always is your record. Um, I think that's how, without getting the chance to know coaches, you first say, well, how have they done? You know, are, are they about, you know, have they had success? Uh, so sometimes I actually think that doesn't tell the full story because, you know, some of, I think, coaches I know, colleagues I've had do their best coaching jobs when the record doesn't reflect that. But I don't think my path was traditional in any sense. I don't think, you know, there was some prototype for this. Obviously there wasn't because no other, you know, division one women's head coach had ever gone to the NBA, but I do think it would have been harder um, for me to be someone that the Cavs, you know, looked at or uh, valued if we hadn't had success at Cal. Um, So I I definitely think in in coaching um, the fact that you've kind of quantifiably done things well helps you always um in whatever the next thing is but it was never part of a plan of mine or anything like that scott yeah you've talked about i'm in in, from what i've read that preparation is such a key part of of you know how you go about the business um it seems to be uh when i was reading about it a, a, a line that we hear from russell wilson a lot is the separation is in the preparation sounds like you subscribe to that as well is that kind of been with you since the beginning of beginning when you got into coaching or is that evolved as to uh, to be part of your um, coaching method um i think i learned really quickly so i i had the the good fortune of working for joanne boyle for several years and she was meticulous about um how to go about situating yourself to be a successful women's college basketball coach uh, from recruiting. You know, she kind of taught me how you um, set up a whole recruiting system. Yes, it's about relationships and it's about that personal connection, but it really is about figuring out how you set up a system that allows you to get in the door with a lot of people. So she was great with that. And I also felt like she was really good with game prep uh, in college. You know, you only play about, an average of 30 or so games a year. And so you're really prepping for each individual game that's coming along. And so this idea of film study and scouting your opponent and getting your own players mentally and physically prepared is a huge part of it. On a broader thing, this idea of preparation, I would say just growing up, um, you know, what what my father was really, I had some good discussions with him long before, you know, I even went into coaching just about the best thing you can do career wise is enjoy what you're doing where you are, be really good at, you know, what you're doing where you are. And then as other opportunities come, you you can be open to them and assess them. So I think my preparation in that sense was a little bit more um, philosophical. It wasn't, Hey, how do I get the next thing? It's more, how do you get yourself ready for anything by being good at what you're doing in the moment? You've been there now for a year in Cleveland. What, COVID aside, what's the experience been like? What's What's been the biggest adjustment maybe that you didn't even expect? 
right? Well, so it's interesting. I mean, obviously 2020 has hit all of us and, you know, blindsided everybody and nothing about this move, I think, has been traditional. Um, you know, obviously we had a coaching change at the all-star break and then we had the season come to a close soon after that. And then, you know, the, the NBA resumes in Orlando without eight teams of which, you know, we're one of them. So there's been a lot that's been atypical, but I would still say the transition has been, um, really, uh, unbelievable and life-changing in a positive way. Uh, certainly has been hard at times, but that was to be expected. I left something that I loved. Uh, we left a place that our family was really comfortable and my husband's never lived outside of California. We, you know, I'd been in the Bay Area for, or California for 15 years, the Bay Area for about 12 of those. So um, there have been a lot of adjustments and that's part of the reason that, you know, we decided to do it, knowing that those challenges would come. I would say the biggest maybe pleasant surprise is how much we love the city of Cleveland. Um, it's incredibly family friendly. It's far more progressive and, and, and diverse than I knew. Um, there's outdoor spaces that we've explored all of during the quarantine when that's the only places you could go. But there's also, you know, it's a great sports town with the three professional teams within walking distance of each other, the arenas, and then there's, you know, good restaurants. So we really love Cleveland. Um, I would say, you know, there's the adjustment from college sports to pro sports. There's a, the adjustment from coaching women to coaching men. And then maybe for me, the biggest adjustment, you know, having been in a, a head coach the last 11 years of my career and going back to being an assistant um, and just having different roles and responsibilities. So all navigating all of that has been challenging, but also really rewarding. How have you managed to navigate that last part? Well, first of all, obviously coming in, you know, eyes wide open, that was my choice, right? My choice was to, at a certain point in my career, pivot. And yes, it's still basketball, but it's a really different role and a different experience. And so, you know, the first part is knowing that I was going to be taking on something different. Um, but really I've, I've navigated it by listening a lot, by learning a lot. You know, uh, my husband, Patrick says all the time, like, think about the opportunity you have just to, um, you know, not have all the pressures of making every decision and being the head coach, but being able to be part of those decisions and watch and learn and, um, just take in all of this. People, I don't think get those opportunities, you know, at this point in your career to kind of pivot and almost be in a basketball think tank. So it's been pretty amazing to be able to do that, but also navigate, okay, where can I add value? Where can my experiences, you know, help the organization or, you know, how can my relationship with JB, you know, benefit him and benefit the team? So it's, it's been a really cool process um, that I, I think, you know, careers and, and lives are enriched when you do different things, when you do challenging things, when you get out of your comfort zone. So it's been all of that. Is it to be part of this, and I don't want to call it a, a movement, but in a way it kind of is, the influx of female coaches into the NBA. It's really come fast and furious just in the last couple of years. Uh, by my count, there are now 11 in the league. You've got Swin Cash as the VP of basketball operations in New Orleans. Um would you have even thought about this when you were a, a student at, at, and a player at Brown years ago and started to think about becoming a coach that 20 years later you'd be in the NBA and it, it's, it's quickly become where it's not that big of a deal. All of this, it, it, It's happened that quickly. Have you been able to think about that? Kind of. And it's hard to exactly articulate. Um, in some ways, if you ask, you know, when I was a, a kid or when I was a young adult, you know, at Brown, um, I don't think I specifically would have thought this or envisioned it. And at the same time, 
I wouldn't have thought that it was impossible. So I, that's a neat kind of way that I think to think about it. That I don't I think the way that my parents raised me is nothing had ever felt impossible. Um, but I wasn't necessarily setting particular goals along the way. Um, so it's, yes, it is cool to be part of, you know, the NBA at all. Right. And then certainly to be a, a part of, you know, this kind of era where it's maybe the beginning of, of more women coming in. I mean, Adam Silver's made it clear that, you know, he's supportive of and wants the league to reflect, um, you know, society, which is, uh, you know, you shouldn't be leaving any particular group, you know, out of the conversation at all for leadership positions. Obviously, you know, when Becky Hammond got hired at that, that visual, visual thing, that representation, seeing it makes you believe it a little bit more. Um, but I did, I was conscious when I made the decision to leave Cal to come that, you know, in the past, men would only leave a head coaching, you know, power five position for, in college to go to the NBA to be a head coach. So I was conscious of the fact that sort of someone had to, to make this, this leap in order for, you know, people to believe that women with extensive coaching experience could also come to the NBA, if that makes sense. Like it doesn't have to be, you know, the movement only to get young females involved of which that's great. Cause I think 20 years down the road, we'll see, you know, women who have coached in the NBA for 20 years, if they start, you know, right after college. But for me, I think having coached for 20 years and then going into the NBA, it's a different model a little bit. And so I felt, um, you know, like maybe me doing that will open the door to more, uh, more people with different levels of experience kind of seeing the NBA as an option. Um, but mostly I, I just, I was intrigued by the idea in Cleveland of how they saw me, where they saw my value being, what I could do here. And that conversation with Kobe Altman, our GM was really different than any conversation I was having with other NBA people at the time. Did you know John for a while before all of this? How did, uh, John Beeline? How did, yeah, John Beeline. I knew I knew Coach Beeline from uh, the Nike trips. So uh, mm-hmm. when Cal was with Nike, you know they take some head coaches, male and female, you know on on a trip, and it was really one of the more reward, rewarding things I, I did. Not just because you're in some cool you know island or something, but because you interact with with men's basketball coaches. And for me, um, growth was always about not just staying in my lane, you know, but learning about the NBA and having contacts in the NBA and picking people's brains and men's basketball. So I met Coach Beeline on one of those trips, but we weren't, we certainly weren't in regular contact. It was um, someone that I knew said, hey, um, you know, this Kobe Altman guy is the GM of the Cavs. He's young. He's thinks outside the box. I think you two would hit it off. Is it okay if I give him your number? And I said, sure. Um, And so uh, Kobe had reached out to me via text and said, I'm interested in, in connecting at some point. And I said, great. And I didn't think too much of it. Um, and that was, was maybe about two weeks before they hired coach Beeline. Um, and so when that hire was announced, I was comfortable enough with Kobe to text him and say, Hey, you know, I know coach Beeline, that's great. You know, congratulations. And he said, you know, thanks. We're excited. I haven't forgot about wanting to connect. Are you free on Monday? He said, I'm going to Chicago for the pre-draft camp you know, I'll be back on Monday. Can we connect then? And I said, sure, but I'm actually also going to Chicago because uh, I was speaking, the junior NBA had asked me to speak on a panel about mental health and athletes. Um, and I said, so I'm gonna be in Chicago too. And he said, oh, let's meet up there. And so then I started to think, okay, he's like busy with the draft and he's going to the combine. Does he really want to take an hour out of his time there to meet with me? And But he, you know, pushed it and was um, all about it. And so uh, when I met with him, I thought it was going to be this philosophical discussion about, you know, where's the NBA going relative to women and 
Do you know any young females who might you know want to be involved? Or what do you want to do five to ten years from now? Because those were more the conversations that I was having with people uh, who sort of knew maybe that I had a fluidity of of the games, right? That I spoke NBA, so so to speak. Um, but he sat down and said, "Look, you know, we just hired Coach Beeline. The intent is to put a staff together that's really about." player development and helping to build this organization, you know, in the post LeBron era of how do we get back to the playoffs? And, you know, I've studied what you've done. I've heard all these things and we want you to be a part of it. And I, at that point I was, I I mean, my jaw was on the ground that that's not what I was expecting. And that sort of changed the, the conversation obviously right away. Do you consider yourself a trailblazer at this point? I mean, the first NCAA head coach to make the transition to the NBA. So, I mean, obviously that first thing, but do you consider yourself that trailblazer type person? I mean, I don't think anybody like thinks of themselves as a trailblazer. I, I, I'm aware that there's some, there's a uniqueness to it. Um, when I'm in the facility, when I'm with the guys, when I'm with the team, it just, it literally I'm treated, it's just like a job, you know, and I'm trying to figure out each day how to be as effective as possible, but it comes when, you know, um, we're waiting to play a game in Philadelphia and the woman who has the courtside seats says, hey, can you take a picture of, you know, with my daughter? This is awesome. You know, I'm so glad she can she can see you in this role. Like that kind of stuff makes you think, wow, you know, this isn't, you know, this isn't something that people are used to seeing or, you know, or even the things that are the tough parts of it, you know, things that need change when you're not qu- treated quite the same as everyone else in the travel party because people can't imagine that you're possibly on the coaching staff, right? Like those are the moments when you recognize that it's, that it's something unique, Um but I, I've always believed that the best way to help other people, the best way to be a trailblazer, quote unquote, is to just be really good at the job. And then all of a sudden people will, will say, well, why, why aren't we hiring the best people regardless of where they come from or gender or what they look like or anything like that? Is there a, a certain player that you've kind of taken under your wing? Is, is there one that kind of like, eh, maybe spend a little bit more time with this player right now? Anything like that? So, well, actually, the way that the NBA works is um, – because you, you have less team practice time, you know, once the season starts, you have 82 games and you're playing almost, you know, every other night. And so group practices are, are short um, and they don't happen every day. So different coaches are kind of assigned different players to work with um, on the court, film, all of that. So the two players, you know, kind of in that kind of cohort that I work the most closely with are Colin Sexton and Alfonso McKinney, actually former for yeah. a warrior. Um, yeah. But I would say in addition to that, um, I really bonded pretty quickly with the young guys, the rookies, um, Kevin Porter Jr., you know, came from USC and, um, you know, he and I just sort of clicked pretty quickly and became close. And then you have different relationships with, with the older guys, you know, like the, the, the conversations with Kevin Love are different, you know, a, a future Hall of Famer is, you know, 30 years old and has a lot of years under his belt are different than your conversations with Kevin Porter Jr., you know, who's, um, you know, and Darius Garland, who we, we, you know, we joked that we're the rookies together. Um, we came in, you know, at the same time. So it's kind of neat to form different types of relationships and bonds with individual players. What's that been like since the season was suspended for you guys? I mean, obviously you weren't part of the whole uh, bubble action. What's it been like, um, you know, these last few months for you and in, in, in working with the team and, and getting ready for next season? Well, first of all, I mean, it's been hard. You think about yeah. – um, I can't remember a time in my life that I haven't been around a team pretty much every day with a little bit of a break here or there. Um, I mean, that's as a player, that's as a a coach for 20 years. And then this year, um, we're just, we're used to being high touch people, literally, you know, around a group all the time. And so all of a sudden, you know, to very suddenly 
you know, having been, I think we played the Chicago Bulls. Uh, we were going to come home for a night and then go on an extended like nine or 10 day road trip. And the one night we were home was the Rudy Gobert night where you know, he was, uh, the game was canceled and then the whole season was uh, suspended. So like in that moment, then all of a sudden we don't see each other for a very long time. So like everybody else, you know, other teams trying to figure out ways to stay connected. Uh, so our staff, you know, did regular Zooms on everything from draft prospect prep to X's and O's to, you know, let's analyze our own pick and roll defense, pick and roll offense, this or that, to looking at how other people are doing things. So we've spent a lot of time doing that. And then just have tried to stay as connected as possible with our group, you know, via Zooms, via meetings. And then recently we were in town together for two weeks, which was nice. We did our own kind of mini camp. Uh, we weren't allowed to play five on five or do, you know, the high contact stuff because we weren't technically in a bubble, which the, the NBA will allow the eight teams to do that uh, in mid-September. But just to be around each other, to, to be working out you know, in the gym, to be able to do some activities, um, it's crazy you know, how much you, you, you miss that when you don't have it. Wanted to uh, quickly give a shout out to our, our, our friend MC Barrett for getting me in touch with you, coach. Uh, I want to get that out there if MC uh, tunes into this. But I also, I, I'd be remiss, Scott would be as well, if we didn't just ask you, is, is there thoughts about one day becoming an NBA head coach? I would, I would assume that that would be natural. Um, I mean, this is such an interesting journey, right? That I, I definitely see it as, you know, like I said earlier, that you're only successful when your feet are planted where you are and you're all in and you're about that experience. And when that happens, then I think you kind of figure out, are you ready for something else? Do you fit somewhere else? Do you add value? So I did not, I did not take the job, you know, and leave, you know, my position at Cal Women's Basketball with the thought that, okay, I'm going to do this for a short amount of time and then the next thing. I really didn't. Um, it wasn't about, hey, can I go to the NBA and then go to a different women's college job or go here or there? I really came here to say this is a chance to be in the most incredible, you know, professional league there is and to see what I'm capable of, you know, in helping this organization. Uh, that being said, you know, I'm, I'm, I hope that I have a lot of years in front of me, uh, in coaching and whatever that looks like, you know, will I be a head coach again? I don't know. Will it be in the NBA? I really don't know. WNBA call. I have no idea. Uh, I think that, um, the more experience I get doing this, uh, shows me that, um, certainly the gender isn't a limiting factor, right? That, that there's nothing about that that would make me more or less capable, but it's about um, being able to make the people around me better, figure out what makes a great NBA head coach right now, figure out how do I help our NBA head coach be as successful as he can be. And, you know, then from there, you know, we'll see what the rest of my, you know, career in, entails. But I don't think there's any reason to think that women, a woman would not be capable of it. It's just, a matter of, you know, the right person, the right time, the right organization. And for me, that's not what I'm thinking about daily. What I'm thinking about daily is being better than I was the day before at the job that I have. And that's, I mean, honestly. Yeah. So I, I would say, is, is it fair to say it's not a matter of if, but when a female eventually becomes an NBA head coach? I think so. Yeah, yeah. I think so. So we wanted to ask you about Australia because Scott and I are both half Australian, our mother's Australian, half of our relatives in, uh, are in Australia. Scott spent, you spent a year in Australia, Scott. So I'll let you ask uh, a coach about Australia. I know you, you had something you wanted to ask her. Yeah, I noticed that when I was sort of 
looking you up. You you were based in Sydney uh, for a year. Was it your junior year of college? Yes. Um, one of my favorite places of the world. I'm just kind of curious how much of the country you got to see while you were there, or were you just sort of, I know you also traveled kind of around the region, went to Thailand, but uh, how much of Australia itself did you get to see? I got to see a ton of that incredible oh, country. Good, good. So, um, so here's the Australia story. Um, I went to an Ivy League school, which as many people know, you know, sports are really important and serious there, but you're not on scholarship, which gives you a little bit more flexibility. So, you know, I had teammates over my time there that, you know, if after two years or three years, you know, they didn't want to play anymore, you didn't have to, right? You're not, it's not, the scholarship isn't dependent on it. Well, for me, um, I was all into basketball, as, as you can possibly, you know, probably imagine. Uh, I loved my team. I loved being part of it. But um my mother passed away at the beginning of my sophomore year of college, and obviously that changed my life perspective. Um, it changed um, just sort of the way I viewed everything. And at the end of my sophomore year, when kind of regular students sometimes go abroad junior year, uh, all of a sudden my perspective on that was, uh, I don't know that I can pass up this opportunity, even though it would mean stepping away from you know our basketball team for a year. So... You know, I kind of summoned up. I knew it was just what I what I wanted to do, what I was supposed to do at that time. So I summoned the courage to you know go to my coach and say, "Look, I I still love this team, but I have to do this." And she was great. She said, "Go, and when you come back, you'll always have a place on on the team." So I go to Australia, you know, studying at the University of New South Wales, and figured I would be back for second semester in the Ivy League season. Well, when I got to Australia, I found out that that university gave out a scholarship for the study abroad student who had the best grades in the first semester, and then you get to go for free the second semester. So now I'm like, okay, if I study this much, that's going to be this much more than all the other Americans who are there to see the country. And so I ended up getting that scholarship to be able to stay the second semester, you know, for free, no, no Brown tuition. I was like, okay, this is a pretty good thing. So I ended up being there for an entire year and traveled across almost the entire country uh, other than Perth, which is their West uh, their west coast. So I was in Sydney. I did a trip to the Great Barrier Reef. I actually took um, a bus up from Sydney to, to Cairns and stopped along the way at a number of places. Um, uh, went to the center of the country and did the backpacking and hiking out there. My, my father came to visit um, and we spent a week in Sydney and also went to Tasmania for a week. Um, went down to the Australian Open for tennis in Melbourne. Um, so pretty much saw you know a good part of the country. It was it was amazing. So you've you've seen a lot of the same things. I did. I did the Australian Open when I was there too. What a fun event that was. Um, I think where we differ on the spots we've seen is I have not been to the Dead Heart as they call it, but I have been to Perth. And if you ever get a chance to go back, do it. Especially Margaret River. Really? Okay. Good to know. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, also yeah. spent uh, two weeks in New Zealand. That was incredible. I yeah. stopped in Fiji on the way on the way back and forth one time. And it just was an incredible year for many, many reasons. But, you know, also the year that um, I decided I wanted to become a basketball coach, um, just the impact, the impact on people that college age. And so when I came back um, and rejoined my team for that senior year, you know, I told my coaches that I wanted to get into coaching. And so I wanted to play that year, but they also let me kind of intern in, in the office and, and figure out what goes on when coaches aren't on the floor coaching. So um, it's weird how in, in a lot of ways, I feel like my coaching career ties back to that year in Australia um, and how meaningful it was and just kind of my, my growth and development as a, as a person and my, the way that I view life. Did you go to any NBL, NBL games while you were there? 
I did. Um, do you remember the name Andrew Gaze? Oh, yeah. yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Ring a bell. He was uh, kind of the Australian Larry Bird. I think he spent a stint in the NBA as well, but I uh, saw him play uh, with the Sydney Kings. Um, so that was really cool. I wonder if that would have been around the same time that uh, our buddy Colin, Brett Jeffries, was playing with Andrew Gaze in the well, NBA. Well, yeah, he was with the Ti- Melbourne Tigers. So I, I played coach at uh, Pacific University up in Oregon. And our the best player on our team, who was a first-team All-American, was an Australian guy. His name was Brett Jeffries. He ended up playing uh, eight, nine years in the NBA for the Melbourne Tigers. Um, so he would have started playing – I think he played 97 to 06. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, I spent yeah. this past year around, you know, one of the greatest Aussie players ever in uh, Delhi. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Great, <laughs> A great Cleveland Cavalier. So we've shared a lot of Australia stories and also Bay Area stories since he played at St. Mary's. Right. Right. So what, looking ahead, um, I mean, obviously Adam Silver said recently, maybe a December start, that could be a little premature. I mean, we, we might, it, it might move into early 2021 now, January, February, we don't know. Um, is, is it hard for you and, and the organization to just not know, not have a timetable? A little bit. I mean, I think in sports, like we're all creatures of routine and habit and scheduling. And there's, you know, there's a lot of thought that goes into for the, for the players, like when you ramp up your body, when you, when you take time off and and no one has any idea uh, when things are going to start. I would say for me, it's probably the least difficult because I'm not, this isn't my normal routine anyway. So, you know, you asked about the transition from college. One of the things that was toughest is that you know, the college rhythm, I I could do it in my sleep, right? You know, when you go recruiting, when you practice hard, when you, when you dial it back, when you're prepping for a game. And now I came in, the basketball is not all that different, but the routines are really different. Uh, And so, so much of it is still new for me. Obviously it's really weird to be like, okay, when are we going to be doing this again? Um, But particularly for, you know, someone like JB, our head coach, who's been doing this for 20 years, it's like, you know, you probably are just your body is so used to the regular rhythms. This is throws it off a little bit, but everyone's in the same boat. And, and obviously there's a lot of things at play. Um, you know, I think the owners would like to have fans in the stands for as many of next year's 82 games as possible. So that means maybe we start later. Um, health and safety is obviously a priority. I think you've seen from this whole thing that our, you know, the leadership of the league is really strong with Adam Silver and the Players Association. So there's a lot of trust in those leaders that they're going to make the right decisions and then make it work. Um, and so for me, I'm trying to uh, just kind of be open-minded, enjoy the time you know, with my family that I don't typically get, uh, literally just being this present, and also prepare the best that I can for when we when we do start. You know, my, my agent you know, called me at one point in quarantine and, and said, okay, how are you getting better during the quarantine? Which I thought was a great thing to say. Um, so it's been a chance for me to watch a lot of film and um, connect with the players on our staff, connect with other people in the industry and just pick people's brains. So trying to be as useful uh, and efficient and productive as I can be during this time. What have you noticed with the games in the bubble? We're not, they're now in the playoffs. Have you noticed it's a different type of a game and, and the feel and the tempo and I mean, the game, what, the game last night, right, was 154 to 111 in a playoff game. You, you wouldn't see that in the playoffs ever. It's, it just it's a, it feels like a different type of a game to me, and, and rightly so. It's a completely different atmosphere. Well, I think the first thing is, you know, fresh legs that, that 
these these guys are you know incredibly elite athletes and typically the playoffs come at the end of a long 82 yeah. game season and now there was a time off which you know you, you worry a little bit does the time off hurt people's rhythm i think but ultimately in aggregate it makes fresher legs and then there's no travel in between games so they're you know these these incredible elite players are at their freshest i would say so i think that's why good offense is always going to be good defense i know it shifts a little bit in the playoffs but this is pretty incredible what we're seeing the displays by but for people i think another thing that's interesting is to me when you watch it on tv the the production is so good in terms of the crowd noise that they pump in and the the visuals and all that so it sort of feels a little more normal than i expected but in that gym there's nobody in there right and so you right. end up i think the guys who just like I mean, they love basketball so much. It's like the ones who can just kind of perform literally when nobody's in there. It's like a, the highest level pickup game. And you just see, you know, people doing incredible things, the numbers that people are putting up and the performances that we see. And um, it, it was really neat to see. I think even the, the play-in games the, or the, the, the rest of the regular season was really intriguing just to see who was able to kind of, you know, step up and, and, and be really great in that environment. Yeah. yeah, I think it's been interesting to watch that aspect of it, the, the feeling of it being a pickup game, and then the guys that are really um, just passionate about the game. I really, it felt like it sh it shined through big time last night watching uh, Jamal Murray play. He was on another level, and I thought, boy, the Jazz are defending him well, and he is getting whatever he wants. He he was just so locked in and just in his own zone. It was uh, it was incredible to watch. Yeah, I mean that's the one one difference that I, I really kind of felt this year is that I always felt in college that if you took away team a team's option A, like if you really defended it well and your players were locked into the scouting report, usually you could have some impact on, on making option A less effective and then option B and C were probably not going to beat you. In the NBA, like you can have all the game plan in the world. You can know exactly what you're supposed to do, what you want to do. And then on any given night or, or maybe even several nights, you know, the players are so good that they can still they can still still get to what they want to get to. Or if you kind of push them out of what they want to get, their option B and C is still still tough still to guard really as good. well. You know, and so uh, it's, that's been a, a really kind of neat challenge to sort of think about things differently and, um, you know, be able to just kind of philosophically pick apart. OK, what do we want to give up? What, what do we not want to get? What do we need to do to score? So that even if they are able to, to get what they want, we can still, you know, have a chance to win the game, that, that kind of thing. Coach, uh, we try to keep these pretty tight. We try not to take up too much time and keep people engaged. So um, I just want to thank you for coming on with us. Uh, you know, I really wanted to get you on. You were, like I said, you were always one of my favorite people to talk to uh, for years when you were Appreciate a Appreciate that. Uh, we all miss you in the Bay Area, for sure. Your personality, you. your energy, your charisma. Um, big loss for the Bay Area, but a, a huge win for the Cavaliers. I know you're you're just going to continue to do amazing things um, from afar and as a reporter uh, for so many years. You know, I'm I'm, I'm always proud to see coaches, especially because I played college basketball. I get it. Um, move on and do great things, and and I've got a special place in my heart for coaches. I just lost uh my community college coach passed away yesterday he was a legend up in the seattle area his name was keith kingsbury winning his coach in community college history and in, in the nwac up there um but how he helped and defined my life and I, I look back 20 some years later about the, the person that he has helped me become today 
and most of it wasn't about what happened on the court with the X's and O's. It's it's all the peripheral stuff. So keep doing what you do so well um, because you're an amazing person, an amazing coach. And, and like I said, Scott and I are just thrilled we could get you on today. Really, really appreciate that. And condolences on the loss of your coach. But I think any coach would like to be spoken about, you know, in that light. So clearly he, he made a big impact and just happy to connect with you guys. And um, hopefully we can do it again soon. Yeah. Thanks, Coach. Episode four Thanks, coach. from Best the Tips. That's a wrap. Okay, take care.